You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Bible Church of Paragool. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagool.com. I got nervous about the steps there because, um, as Jared pointed out, I'm getting older, and I hit 42 this year, and I've counted how many steps it takes for me to get up from sitting down for my back to straighten out and not to feel tension anymore. And the other day I was at the park with my kids and my kids jumped down off this uh, elevated area and I got to the edge of it. It was about, it was a little lower than this. And I thought, I better not do that. (laughs) And then I thought, oh my God, I'm 42 years old now. And so, yeah, uh, Becky and I did get married when we were seven. So it's been a great marriage. Um, y'all, thank you so much for coming today, listening to me talk for a few minutes. Um, I'd be lying if I said I didn't avoid Paragol for the last couple of years. It was just the drive. It's not the city. Lovely city. Um, I saw y'all had an overpass. I was amazed at some of these things. So I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. If you are into public speaking, do what I do. Alienate your audience as soon as you start talking, and everything should go great. Um, It really is uh, great to be here, friends. Um, Jared, guys, thank you for your hospitality, all your warm uh, smiles this morning. Um, I love Jesus' word, um, and I'm going to read to you from Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3, starting in verse 1, I'm going to read through verse 9. Philippians 3, 1 through 9. Um, Paul the Apostle wrote this, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and he says this, Finally... My brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh and put no confidence in the flesh. I'm sorry, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Uh, Skip to verse. Verse 3, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. And this is Paul's reason for putting confidence in his flesh. Um, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised, verse 5, on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Which was a Greek word for a really, a really crude expression for poop. I count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God, that depends on faith. Um, I love this text. It is dear to my heart. Um, I badly wanted to work in verses 10 and 11 
um, that are so wonderful about wanting to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings and uh, not being, being conformed to his death that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. But I wanted to stop at verse 9 because um, I think what he says in verses 1 through 9 is crucial for every single one of us in this room. I really do, especially for us uh, Christians who were... Uh, who who uh, were carved out in our faith in the South. Um, It's really important that we hear this. He says in verse 1, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. When he says rejoice in the Lord, that's not preacher talk. That's not filler. He's not trying to think of something. He's not trying to say something while he's trying to think of something more substantial and meaty to say. He's saying something that he wishes for all of his readers to grasp. Rejoice in the Lord. Throughout the book of Philippians, he uses the word joy a number of times, over a dozen times. Uh, Some people say that the whole point of Philippians is joy. I agree and disagree with that. I don't think it's just about joy by itself. It's about joy in something. Because the Philippian church was undermined by relational tension, backbiting, infighting, all that kind of stuff. The the Philippian church looks a lot like the backseat of our car on a road trip. That's what the Philippian church looked like. Here's the line, don't cross, give me my iPod back, all that kind of stuff. That's what the Philippian church sort of feels like when you read what Paul is saying to them. And he says this, After talking about joy so much in this letter, he's beginning to wrap it up, but he ends with the most fundamental reason that he's writing, and he says to them this, finally, not, these are my last words, I'm done, I've said all the good stuff before this, but finally, here's what I really want to say, and this sums up everything that I'm getting at. Rejoice in Jesus. Rejoice in Him. Find your joy in Him and in Him alone. This is not just preacher talk. So when we sing stuff like, Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight, that's what we're singing about. That's what our understanding of faith is in Jesus. That we serve, in a sense, kind of blindly right now. Paul wrote to the Corinthians and said that the way that we see the Lord, it's like through looking at a a dim piece of glass or 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 a mirror that's sort of foggy. It's hard to see Him. He says, I want you to rejoice in the Lord and one day through all of Paul's writings and all of the New Testament, there is going to be a point at which Jesus will return physically and bodily and every single person on planet earth will see him. We will see him. And we who follow him now will rejoice in him. He will be the most beautiful, spectacular face that we have ever seen. That we've ever seen. We've ever seen. So the rest of this chapter, Paul spends his time teasing out how to rejoice in Jesus. What it looks like to rejoice in Jesus. And so let's go to verse 2. I want you to hang on, though, to that last phrase in verse 1. He says, for me to write the same things to you, it's no trouble for me, and it's safe for you. Remember that part. We we may get back there. We may. Um, Verse 2. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. One of the big problems that they were facing in the church at Philippi and a lot of other churches that Paul had planted were there were these sort of pseudo-Christians, semi-Christians from Jerusalem 
that were raised in the Jewish faith. And in their Jewish upbringing, they knew, they knew that in order to be qualified, to be counted as part of God's people, it wasn't just enough that you were born with a Jewish last name. As a male, you had to be circumcised on the eighth day because that was the mark that identified Jewish people. Next week, Jared's going to be preaching on the significance of circumcision, so I'll let him deal with that. But uh, in the meantime, or in August, first week of August, sorry. Um, in the meantime, uh, these, these people were called, often called Judaizers. And they would go, they would sneak in to Paul's church plants. And his church plants often were imprinted on the ancient Jewish synagogue. And so there would be people who would gather on the Lord's Day, and people who were guests who seemed to have some theological training were invited to say a few words. It's obvious why we don't do that anymore. Because these Judaizers would stand up and begin saying things, something like this probably. We love your Jesus, we think he's wonderful, he's great, but Jesus isn't enough. If you only trust in him and depend on him, then you're in deep trouble. There are things that you've got to do to finish or complete what Jesus has begun in your life. Paul didn't view this as just a philosophical disagreement. Paul didn't say, man, don't, just don't pay attention to those guys. Paul launches an all-out assault on these people who say those things. Basically, emasculating Jesus' divinity and authority over our lives. He says this. He says, watch out for the dogs. Dog was a very Jewish way of viewing someone who was outside of the covenant family of Israelites. If you called someone a dog or referred to someone a dog, it wasn't just a, a mean-spirited cut down. It was a way, a traditional way of viewing people who were not in the family of Israelites. They were not considered truly Jewish. He says, these people who are from Israel, who were raised as Israelites, who ethnically are Jewish, these people, because of what they say, it's as though they are outside of the family of God. He says, not, he says, he doesn't just call them dogs either. He calls them evildoers. Now, these were not people who were sleeping around outside of their marriage. These were not murderers. These were not people who stole things. These were people who followed the law of God very, very carefully. And Paul says that because of what they preach, it is as though not only they're outside the family of God, but the works that they do, even though they are morally good, God looks at as actually evil. Evil works. Then he says this about them. He says they are mutilators of the flesh. He's referring to the demand that they are putting on Christians to be circumcised. But more than likely, what he also has in mind is this. These people consider themselves, these Judaizers, devout unto Yahweh our God. They follow Him. They claim to follow Him. But in asking you to be circumcised, saying that Jesus isn't enough, they are no better than the other pagans in your world who carry on in bloody and disgusting occultic practices. They are more like the pagans who worship false gods than they are like us who worship the one true God. Now this is a verbal assault Paul launches on them. Why? Why is he doing that? 
Because Paul's a theological elitist and he's just, just going off on people and launching into these polemical arguments against people who disagree with him. No, that's not why he's doing this. Because the goal of Paul's teaching them is one thing and one thing alone. That they would rejoice in Jesus. They would find life in Jesus. And my friends, we Southern Christians have grown, and we have to remember this. When you hear preachers like me get up and say that Jesus has the most beautiful face ever seen, your temptation is going to be whatever. Because you've cut your teeth on Southern Christianity. And you have to turn that off and turn on the side of your brain that is truth-seeking and remember that what I'm telling you is right. And if you don't feel it, it's not that the truth is wrong. It's that our hearts are far from Him. And our hearts need to be reformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul's going for here. Paul wants the people that he's writing to to be transformed by the living Jesus. He's not just the picture behind the podium at your local church. He's not, that's not Jesus. It's not Jesus. He's different. And anybody who says that Jesus isn't enough, that Jesus is simply a worldview, a religion, that following Jesus means walking the straight and narrow, getting your head screwed on straight, behaving, being a good boy, being a good girl. Paul has these words to say about those kinds of people and about that belief system. It is evil. It is evil. It mutilates us, and it leaves us outside of the covenant family of God. That's what thinking that way does to us. That's what it does. Verse 3. For we are the circumcision, Paul says, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul says, we are the circumcision. We are the ones who are marked by God. Now, Paul, obviously, if he's arguing against having to get literally circumcised to be a part of God's family, he must mean something metaphorical here. When he says we are the circumcision, he's not saying literally that we are literally circumcised and that makes us cool with Jesus. What he's saying is that we are the circumcision and there is a particular mark on our life. What is that mark? And he says that we have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has entered into every single walking, talking believer on the face of the earth. Well, I guess even if you can't walk or talk, you're a believer. You're also marked by the Holy Spirit. You have the Spirit in your life. We are God's true people who have the Holy Spirit. We, he says this, who worship God by the Spirit. Now, I want to ask you something. Rhetorical question. Don't answer me. I guess I can't stop you if you want to, but... Um, when you think of worship, I want you to consider what is the first idea that comes to your mind when you think of worship. Just think about it. What are the connotations that surround the word worship in your mind? I would bet that for most people, unless you're trying to outsmart the preacher, I would bet for most people you're probably thinking of something like singing, praising, Music, church services, Sunday morning. That's not what Paul means when he says we worship in the Spirit. He's not talking about a brand of Christians who do this during the slow songs. That's not what he means when he says those who worship in the Spirit. He's talking about a lifestyle. 
He's talking about a way of life. To Paul, worship is not a function on a Sunday morning. Worship is a lifestyle. Now, when I say lifestyle, I don't mean that we sing every day of the week. Maybe that's a good idea. But what he's talking about is a distinctive way of living our lives. He's talking about the way that we parent our children. He's talking about the way that we watch television. He's talking about the way that we listen to music. He's talking about the way that we are husbands to our wives, our wives to our husbands. He is also talking about singing and doing church on Sunday mornings, but that's not all he's talking about. He is talking about an entirely different way of life that we embrace when we experience the Holy Spirit enter our lives, give us the ability to believe in Jesus, we change. We change. He said, we are the circumcision. What is the mark of Christian circumcision? We worship God by the Spirit. And here's what else we do. As a result of worshiping God by the Spirit, here's what that looks like. We glory in Christ Jesus. We glory in Him. Now, I, I, I pastor a traditionally charismatic church. And people usually get upset when I say the things that I'm going to say. And people who aren't part of traditional charismatic churches sometimes also get upset as well. But people often talk about how we glorying in Christ Jesus, getting happy for Jesus. Come on, let's let the charismatics do that. My contention with such a thought is, is that if I were to go to an Alabama Crimson Tide football game, Everybody there glories in Alabama the same way. You don't have people that, some, yeah, you've got a few, but largely speaking, most people when Alabama scores a touchdown aren't going like this. You've got a few like that. I get it. And I'm not saying that, I'm not talking about worship styles and what is, is and isn't of God or whatever. That's Jared's job. But, um, but what, you have to ask yourself the question here. What does it look like to glory in Christ Jesus? As Southern Christians who are so used to church and over-familiar with church, can we even relate to that phrase, to glory in Christ Jesus? If I were to ask you, what does it look like for you to glory in Christ Jesus in your life? I would bet that most people, not just you, but my church and most other churches, most people will be like, uh, gosh, that's kind of subjective, Chris. What exactly do you mean by glory in Christ? Just what, is, what does it mean to glory in Christ Jesus? I have to believe that at least, by the full testimony of the New Testament, that at least what it means to glory in Christ Jesus is that I have increasing affections for Jesus that become visible in some way. Some way. I'm not saying you've got to jump up and down and shout and holler. That's not what I'm saying. But some way my affections for Jesus grow and overtake my affections for everything else in my life. Everything. Everything. I love Jesus more than I love the Crimson Tide. Or the Arkansas Razorbacks. Or the Memphis Tigers. <laughs> which is really easy. Um, I love Jesus more than all of that. More than all of that. I love Jesus more than... Whatever it is that gives us our identity, I glory in Christ Jesus. Again, Paul's talking about what does it look like to rejoice in Jesus? 
He's talking about a complete lifestyle of what it looks like to be swept up by the kingdom of God. This is huge. He says, so we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. And here's what else it looks like to be circumcised spiritually. We put no confidence in the flesh. No confidence. We don't depend on our flesh. We don't lean on our flesh. Hmm, that's interesting. We don't lean on our flesh. Now, again, when Paul talks about the flesh, he is not talking about a sinful impulse here. So, for instance, if I were to get aggravated and frustrated with my children, I might say something like, oh, I'm I'm acting out in the flesh. Or if I was frustrated with my wife and I lost my temper with her or said something ugly to her, I might be tempted to think, I got in the flesh. Or if I got frustrated with, my, with the staff at my church, I was in the flesh at today's staff meeting. And that's true. Flesh can mean that. But that's not what Paul means here. Paul does not mean flesh equals sin in this text. That's not what Paul means here. Paul says this, that when I de- do not depend on the flesh, he's saying I don't depend on the things that make me a good boy in God's eyes. I don't depend on those things. When I assess my Christian faith, I don't think to myself, you know, I read my Bible every day. I've prayed a lot lately. I hadn't missed church in a long time, even on July 3rd. I've got some consistent rhythms in my life, so I'm doing good. I'm doing good, praise God. I'm not saying those things are bad. But if that is what we view as the mark of being circumcised in Jesus... We are sadly and sorely mistaken, my friends. That does not mean you are doing well. I had an interview, a marriage counseling appointment two weeks ago on a Wednesday evening. Went a couple of hours with a couple. These people are in church every week. Reading their Bibles. Probably follow the Bible plan 50 times in a row. You know, they're, they're about that age. They, I mean, they cross their T's. They dot their I's. They live morally upright lives. And I'm looking at two people who hate one another. They despise each other. Those are the things we need to be looking at when we assess our spiritual lives. Because the Spirit has something to say about that stuff. He should be active in that stuff and in our relationships. So what does Paul mean when he says he doesn't put confidence in his flesh? Here's what Paul meant in this text when he talked about the flesh. The first thing he meant was his ethnicity. He was an Israelite. He was an Israelite. His flesh. The second thing that he meant when he talked about flesh was this. His cultural rituals that he inherited from his family and his parents and his parents' parents and his parents' parents' parents that had been handed down for generations. That's what he also means by flesh. His religious practices, his ritual worship rhythms. This is what he means by the flesh. But he also means doing good things. Following hardcore after God. Being good. Doing good things. Being a moral person. Being obedient. He says all these things make up the flesh. And Paul says, I'm pushing back on this stuff. All these things I've counted as a loss. Why? Because all of these things that I put trust in, they are liabilities in my life. They're liabilities. 
What makes them liabilities? What is it? Look at verse uh, 7 through 9. Paul says this, But whatever gain I had, what is the gain that he's talking about? Being circumcised on the eighth day. Being born of the tribe of Benjamin, one of the elite tribes in Israel. Being a Hebrew of Hebrews. His official status concerning obedience to the law was blameless. His official pharisaical status. He says, all of these things became liabilities in my life. In other words, this. The life that every one of us is praying for. God, please help me to get past this addiction. Please help me to read my Bible every day. Please help me to treat my wife right and not be frustrated with my kids. Please help me to quit cussing at work and using so much profanity and sexual and sexual innuendo. Please help me to quit X, Y, and Z that we hate in our lives. Paul had that life. All of your answered prayers, Paul had, and he says all of that was a liability in my relationship with Jesus. All of it was. It undermined my relationship with Jesus. All of it did. Whoa. Paul's achievements and his heritage and his behaviors all undermined him knowing Jesus. All of it did. How do we know that? Because he says the one thing that he wants is a righteousness that depends. That depends on faith. That depends on faith. I need a righteousness that doesn't come from what I do. I need a righteousness that I can't boast in. I need a righteousness that comes from Jesus giving it to me. Not from my own personal achievements. I don't know about you folks, but that speaks to me. Because I've tried to pull off the life of Paul before Jesus, and I can't do it. I can't do it. Every day I'm condemned by the thoughts in my mind, the feelings in my heart, the behaviors of my hands, my life. I am condemned every day if Jesus does not step into the history of my life and give me a righteousness that I can't get on my own. And he says that kind of righteousness comes one way, through depending on Jesus. Now, if you're theologically prone, you might be thinking, oh, I wish you'd just say dependence on faith in Jesus. I get what you're saying. Here's the problem I have with that. In Southern culture, faith is thinking the right thing. That's not what biblical faith is. Biblical faith is coming to a place where you know you can't do it on your own. And you know that you need someone else to step in and do it for you. And the story that the Bible tells us, a story that I believe is true, is that Jesus came down, lived a perfect life. Not only did he obey the law of God, but Jesus raised the dead. Jesus healed the sick. Jesus advocated for the oppressed. Jesus taught God's word and God's ways. And despite all of that, he was murdered by religious Bible-believing people. But mysteriously, that was part of God's plan. And so God resurrected Jesus on the third day, which proves that Jesus has total power and authority to heal us of any brokenness and forgive us of any sinfulness. 
He has total authority over our lives. He has power over everything broken inside of us. This is why I depend on Jesus. Because when I look at my heart and my works every day, I'm still condemned. I see the law pointing at me and saying guilty, which is why I need to know that I am in Jesus. Because when the law points at me and says guilty, I need Jesus to point back and say innocent. I need that to happen in my life. I need that to happen. And that only comes through me depending on Jesus' works and not my own. That only comes that way. That only comes that way. Paul's accomplishments were all possible without Jesus. You can follow the Bible reading plan on version for 365 days this year, and you can do that without Jesus. You cannot commit adultery without Jesus. You can go a season of your life and not think lustful thoughts without Jesus. You can quit watching things on TV full of nudity and, and, and uh, grotesque profanity and other things that we shouldn't be exposed to as followers of Jesus. You can do that without Jesus. You can do that all without Jesus if you've got enough self-discipline. Paul knew that. I can do all this without him, and I am still empty. If God answered all your prayers right now and took away all of your sin, you know what would happen to most of us? We would have no use for Jesus. We don't need him. Because the, the core of our faith is to be sinless and to be good boys and good girls. It's not to know Jesus. And Paul wanted to know Jesus. He wanted to be with Jesus. He wanted to take on Jesus' identity, Jesus' personhood, Jesus' ways, Jesus' impulses. He even says in the last two verses of this section, he says, I want to even experience death like Jesus. Everything Jesus is, I want. I don't think Paul was saying, I want to be crucified like Jesus. I just think he knew that death comes with serving Jesus, a dying to self. Maybe that's what he meant, I don't know. But He wanted everything Jesus was. So what did Paul do? He repented of his goodness. He repented of his goodness. He said, God, I'm sorry for getting it right. Forgive me for doing everything right. Forgive me. Because when I'm doing everything right, I don't need Jesus. Jesus is inconsequential in my life at that point. I don't need him. I don't need him. His goodness prohibited him from diving deeper and deeper into Jesus. His goodness made everyday dependence on Jesus elusive. There's a famous preacher named Tim Keller. He said something like this. Sometimes being good is the best way to avoid Jesus. If I can be good enough, I don't need Jesus. And for a lot of people in the southern church, oh my goodness, that's what we're going for. I don't want to have to depend on Jesus. If I can get it right, if I can piece together a moral lifestyle and add some church attendance, then I can go about my way. I can do my thing. God won't interfere. 
But that's not what it means to be submitted to the Lordship of Jesus. All of us in this room have struggles with spiritual conceit. All of us do. I sat there two weeks ago and I'm still, I'm honestly, very sincerely, I am grieving the conversation that I had with that couple. That ain't my first rodeo. I've been in full-time ministry for 20 years. This happens all the time and it saddens me. And I have to fight cynicism every single day because I'm looking at two people who volunteered at a high level, who worship Jesus real hard, hands in the air, singing loud, shouting, all that kind of stuff, and who won't even look at each other. And they look, and when they do consider each other in their hearts, they are monstrous to one another. There is no way for Jesus to come in and mediate and reconcile and the Holy Spirit to bring about forgiveness in that relationship because they despise one another. They despise one another. They hate each other. Or as we like to say in the, in the southern church, we love them, but I just don't like them. They hate each other. And when we do this, when we take on this ungodly form of goodness, it turns other people into monsters. So, such as this. You might, you might struggle with spiritual conceit if you find yourself saying things like, I wish that guy or that girl could get their act together. What's up with them, man? Seriously? <sighs> you know, all that stuff that we do. I think about Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, where this, it's a parable that Jesus told that is shocking. You've heard it a thousand times. And I beg you, don't let it fall on your deaf ears. Don't let the power of this escape you. Jesus told this parable to those, to some, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and who treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But this tax collector, who was standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus said these haunting words. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I thank you that I'm not like them. Jesus says it's actually the them that are easier to justify than you. The needy, Jesus is implying here, are closer to God than the people who have their stuff together. Or maybe you say something like this. I've got a way more advanced view of church than my pastor does. I've heard that a few times. If they did it this way and this way and this way, then, you know, things would... How can you call yourself a Christian and you don't adopt orphans? Like, what's wrong with you? I've heard that too. How can a person who claims to know Jesus vote for... How's that even possible? 
had a person tell me one time, he said, speaking of another brother, a brother that I know who loves Jesus, he says, I don't even know how you can call yourself a Christian and be a Democrat. I thought to myself, I'm trying to find that verse. (laughs) For we are justified by faith and being a Democrat. That's in Habakkuk 2, I think, maybe, somewhere in there. Uh, I'm not saying these issues aren't complex, aren't contentious. I'm not. I'm not, I'm not denying that. Please don't, don't call me naive. You can think it, just don't call me naive. Um, how could parents send their children to public school? Here's a good one. I live on mission. I wish other believers would get God's heart like me. I would never see an R-rated movie. Nope. I've been faithful to my Bible study fellowship for 15 years. It's no wonder why my life's in better shape than that one woman who shows up once a month. Our family isn't in debt. We were sexually pure when we got married. Why doesn't she just lose some weight? Then she won't have as many health problems and monopolize our community group meetings with her problems. I've got a more advanced understanding of soteriology and the things, the big theological issues. And, you know, if (laughs) they're Arminians, then gosh, do they even read the Bible? That was for whoever understood that. Okay. Um, All of these things give us a sense of accomplishment. And some of these things may even be good. But it does not equal knowing Jesus and depending on Jesus. It doesn't. So, in conclusion, I just want to challenge you with a few thoughts. There are a few major implications in this text that I want to run by you. Just think about it. Maybe you can find some others that I've missed. Probably have. I want to challenge you first. When you assess your Christian life, quit looking for behaviors and start looking for affections. Start looking for affections. And I don't mean that you should always be feeling up and to the right with Jesus. Sometimes you have seasons where it just feels cold. That's okay. But look for, rather than rejoicing in the religion of Jesus, rejoice in the person of Jesus. He is real. He is living. He is breathing. He is sitting somehow cosmically at the right hand of God. And one day, this real, living, breathing God-man will return. And we will enjoy the beauty of His face for all eternity. We will have resurrected bodies, those of us who know Jesus. We will live not in heaven, jumping from cloud to cloud with a, with a harp, but we will live on a new earth. And we will swim in oceans and climb mountains and we will run trails and we will eat great meals together with new bodies that can feel and can touch and eyes that we can see and ears that we can hear His voice. And we will have the most blissful, joyful eternity ever that only comes with depending on Jesus. So don't... Don't be so excited about loving the religion of Jesus. 
the denomination of Jesus. Love the person of Jesus. Second thing is this. Do not allow your heart to be tainted by religious, judgmental people. They are the dogs. If you find yourself in the church around people who, who like to imply gossip, who like to taint your heart with negative news, push back away from that. I'm not telling you anything that the, the scriptures don't say. Anyone who calls himself a brother is in a gossip. In a gossip, Paul says, don't even sit at the same table with that person. That person defames the name of Jesus. I'm not saying maybe step one shouldn't be to go, hey, brother, can I speak into your life? <laughs> but if you are around people who, who unrepentantly live that way, back off. Be with godly, Jesus-loving people. Here's the next one. Worship Jesus in the Spirit. Be aware of your heart's state. You should feel an implicit warning in your heart when your heart is hard and bitter towards another person. I'm not saying that that situation has to be resolved immediately. But if you sense bitterness in your heart, that should send up a warning flare really, really fast. Things are not good between you and Jesus. You should be aware and be warned by a resistance to truth inside of you. And sometimes it looks like this. When the preacher's walking in the hallway, you're jumping into the bathroom to avoid him. There's something about sin that causes us not just to dodge truth, but to dodge godly people. That's a warning sign that something is wrong in your heart. And don't allow yourself to become satisfied with clocking in to church. It's not about clocking into church. It's not about being here on July 3rd or July 10th or July 17th. It is about being deeply rooted in Jesus. And that, but that looks like something. It's the last thing. But the fundamental implication of this whole text, I think, I think you can go back to verse 1. That could drive everything that we do. Paul says, I don't mind telling you the same thing over and over and over and over again. I don't mind telling you that. We live in an age when we are wowed by novelty in the pulpit. If the preacher can bring something new and something fresh and something good, next Sunday, church was good. Paul's saying here, it's actually better for you if I preach the same thing over and over and over and over and over again so you get it. I can't tell you how many people have started a version Bible reading plan and the farthest they've ever gotten is judges. The Pentateuch beat the daylights out of them. Numbers, Deuteronomy, Exodus, they can't handle any more of it. And by they, they, we can put together three or four months of good, or good rhythms of reading our Bible, then we just burn out every year. We've got tons of people in our church that have read the first five books of the Bible a hundred times and haven't read anything else. Maybe instead of living under that guilty bondage of, I can't read through my Bible in a year, somebody could show me a verse that says you've got to read through your Bible in a year. I don't know where that is. Maybe you could do something, and I'll, I'll submit this completely to Jared and the pastoral team here. I don't know if they've got you guys on a Bible reading plan or something. But what I'm doing these days is coaching people. Why don't you take a chapter and spend a week reading and meditating on that chapter? And if it takes you eight years to get through the Bible, so be it. But you are going to grow in love. You're going to grow in patience. 
you're going to grow in kindness, and you're going to grow in self-control. And most importantly, you're going to grow in a dependence on Jesus. Hit repeat. Root down in your local church. Be a part of the rhythms of regular, monotonous, following Jesus. Quit looking to be wowed by the preacher. Quit looking for new things. Just root down and look for something deeper and so much more important. Increasing affections for Jesus. May you be found in him the same way Paul said, may I be found in Jesus. In Jesus' name. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for today. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your people. I pray in Jesus' precious name that every one of us in this room would have a growing hunger to know you, the person of Jesus. Jesus, who is our great and sovereign God. I pray, Jesus, that we would abandon all other ways that we assess ourselves if it gives us a sense of accomplishment and rather pick up the one thing that means something for all eternity, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, fellowship in his sufferings, and be conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead and see him forever. In Jesus' name, amen.